Shabbat Shalom. So you remember how a few months ago we kind of fixed up the parking lot out there and we got rid of Lake Simcot that would, uh, that would happen every time it rained? Turned out Lake Simcot never really went away. Uh, it just moved to the roof. So the problem is now the ceiling is leaking. And not only is it leaking, I feel like one of those cartoon characters who always have like the little cloud over their head when they're grumpy because I'm sitting in the music pit and also I'm just feeling right in my spot. Right there. The bad news is the roof is leaking. The good news is we have a swimming pool on our, um, on our roof now, which I've always wanted. So uh, we're having a pool party next week. Bring your swimsuits. So every week here at Simcha Yisrael, we say the Shema it's a, as a declaration of faith in God. I think we're very familiar with the structure of the Shema by now. Uh, you know, it comes in these two separate parts. First we say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we follow that by saying, you guys, know, you guys know the words here, blessed be his glorious kingdom forever and ever. That's the Shema. That's how it's been done since time immemorial. Except, that's not actually true. The Mishnah tells us that long ago, when the prayer was first introduced into Jewish liturgy, it actually had three parts instead of two. Can anyone guess what the third part of the Shema was? I'll give you guys a hint. It was in our reading for this week's parsha. What did we, what did we read this week? Ten Commandments, right? third part of the Shema was the Ten Commandments. Back in the temple days, the Ten Commandments were actually recited first, and then the Shema was read. And there's, you know, there's historical evidence for this. This wasn't just something in the Mishnah. You know, archaeologists recently found some ancient Sidurim written on papyrus scrolls in Egypt. They, they date back to about 200 years before the Common Era. So you know, they were clearly used for Jewish prayer, and they contain the Ten Commandments followed by the Shema. Uh, the tefillin found in the Qumran caves alongside the Dead Sea Scrolls had the Ten Commandments written on them along with the Shema. So the Shema we read today is actually a revision of the original prayer. So the question is, why was it changed? You know, there, there are lengthy arguments in Talmud about this subject. The sages had to make a ruling to eliminate the Ten Commandments from the Shema because they didn't want to elevate these ten above all the, rest of the, all the rest of them, all the rest of the 613 mitzvot. So the problem was that some people in the Jewish communities were teaching that the Ten Commandments were the only true commandments of God, and that all the other mitzvot in Torah were just made up by Moses. You know, the rabbis of the time realized they couldn't encourage this line of thinking. So they removed the Ten Commandments from their elevated position before the Shema, as a way of saying, these Ten Commandments are no greater than any of the other mitzvot. All of God's commands are equally holy. So, sure, that solved the problem, you know, forever. Yeah, but, but begs the question, if God didn't want the Ten Commandments to be favored, why did he place so much emphasis on them? The Ten Commandments are the only mitzvot spoken by the voice of God directly to the entire nation of Israel. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own hand on the two tablets of stone that Israel will carry everywhere with them. You don't need to be the om- omniscient, 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 omniscient. You don't need to be the all-knowing God to realize that people were going to privilege these commands above all the rest. I was reading up on the Ten Commandments this week, and, and Christians who passionately declare that they are not under the law of Moses will make an exception for these ten. So why would God emphasize these Ten Commandments 
knowing the confusion and the trouble it would cause. And maybe God does think that these ten are more important than the rest. You know, the question of, you know, some commands being greater than others, it's not a new one. And if you look at Judaism, the answer seems to be a definitive yes. You know, some mitzvot are greater than others. You know, uh, for example, there's a famous midrash about a poor man who came to synagogue on Shabbat on a freezing cold winter evening. He didn't have any money on him to pay the entrance fee to come into the shul. But he was, you know, he was so hungry for teaching that he climbed onto a tree and he was listening through the window. The problem was it was so cold out there, after a few minutes he became like frozen stiff like a popsicle. You know, eventually someone looked out the window and saw this poor man with icicles hanging off his beard. So they quickly they grab him and they pull him off the tree and they bring him inside. But he's like stiff as a board and turning blue. He needed to be warmed by a fire. But it was Shabbat and it was forbidden to light a fire. You know, so they call the rabbi, like, what should we do, what should we do? And the rabbi quickly said, no. The command to not stand idly by while a man's life is in danger took precedent over the command not to kindle flame on Shabbat. So a fire was lit and the man's life was saved. You know, the command in Leviticus 19.16 to not stand idly by when a human life is in danger takes precedence over almost every law in Torah. You know, there are plenty of Orthodox Jewish surgeons who keep their pages on on Shabbat in case they are needed to perform emergency surgery. There's almost no laws in Torah that can't be broken in order to save a person's life. But there are a few you know, if a man puts a gun to someone's head and told you he was going to kill them, if you didn't commit murder, sexual immorality, or worship an idol, it would be a greater sin to obey him to save a life than to allow someone to die. So there is a pecking order when it comes to mitzvot. You know, preserving life is greater than keeping Shabbat. Uh, the, prohibit- the prohibition against idolatry is even greater than preserving life. Some laws are greater than others. You know, even Yeshua confirms this. You know, Messiah has to deal with a similar issue in his time. One day when Yeshua was teaching, a lawyer came up to him trying to trip him up and get him to say something that could be used against him. So the lawyer asks, what is the greatest of the commandments? You know, the lawyer might have expected Yeshua to answer you know, that the covenant of circumcision was the most important or the laws of sacrifice. Or maybe Yeshua would say all commands were of equal importance. Instead, Yeshua famously replied, You shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Torah and prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, that's about as perfect an answer as you can get, but it raises that same controversy. As you know, same controversy as the Ten Commandments. Are some mitzvot greater than others? When Yeshua tells us about these, that these two are the greatest, does that mean we don't have to worry so much about the rest? You know, Yeshua told his followers over and over again that if they love him, they will keep his commands. You know, if you were just to pull a Christian off the street, you know, he'd probably be, be a little upset with you if you did that, but if you were just pull him off the street and ask him what, he, what, what the commands of Yeshua are, I feel pretty confident he's not going to say the law of Moses even though Yeshua did command people to follow the law of Moses, it's another story. No, he's going to tell you, we have to love God and love one another. What else is there? Why would you know all these trifling rules when we have love? Maybe some laws are more important than others, but can we take that to its logical endpoint? If some laws are great, does that mean the rest are of no significance? 
maybe the Ten Commandments do overshadow the rest of the Torah. Maybe the great commandments of Yeshua take precedence over the Ten Commandments. Heck, we're justified by faith, right? Maybe we don't need any commandments at all. You know, maybe the Beatles are right. All you need is love. We need Torah. Is that what's going on here? Is God telling us that the Ten Commandments are greater than the law of Moses? Is Yeshua telling us that his commands are greater than Torah? I don't think that's what's happening here. When God emphasizes the ten words, he's not trying to diminish the rest of Torah. When Yeshua emphasizes his great commands, he's not trying to lessen the other mitzvot. They're not even trying to establish a hierarchy of laws. What God and Yeshua are doing is trying to teach us something profound about Torah. There's a famous story from Jewish tradition that I think illustrates what I'm talking about. I've probably heard this one before. Once there was a Gentile living in Jerusalem who became interested in Judaism and desired to convert. However, every rabbi he went to rejected him and told him to leave their shul. This was probably because the man had a very peculiar way of asking to learn about Torah. Everywhere he would go, he would tell the rabbi, I want to convert, but only on the condition that you can teach me all of Torah while I am standing on one foot. Now, the study of Torah is a lifelong endeavor and certainly can't be learned in just a few minutes. So everywhere the man went, he was sent packing. Uh, Rabbi Shammai, who was famous in his day, even chased him down the street, beating him with his walking stick for his impertinence. Imagine the man hopping away on one foot while he's being chased by an old man with a stick. It's, it's a funny image. You know, finally, the man came to the shul of the great Rabbi Hillel. He walked in and said, Rabbi, I want to convert, but only on the condition that you can teach me all of Torah while I stand on one foot. Now, Hillel could have gotten angry or impatient with the man like all the others, but he recognized something that the others didn't. If there's one request that a potential convert has the right to make, it must be, explain this to me in a way that I can understand. You know, this man, you know, on one foot, he wasn't a great Torah scholar or a sage. He was probably not even very clever at all. But he was hungry for the Lord, and he wanted a message he could understand. So Rabbi Hillel made it simple for him. He told the man, Whatever you wouldn't want done to you, do not do to others. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn it. And that day, the man converted to Judaism. You know, those words probably sound familiar. You know, sociologists call it the golden rule. And some form of it appears in nearly every major religion and ethical tradition. So Yeshua himself expounded upon it during his Sermon on the Mount. He transformed Hillel's words from a negative command into a proactive instruction to seek to do good to others. Yeshua and Hillel's lives, they they actually overlapped each other in their lives. Yeshua almost certainly knew Hillel's teachings. Hillel actually died right around the time that Yeshua was a boy in Jerusalem asking and answering questions in the temple. I know it's not particularly likely, but I like to think that Hillel was one of the teachers who was astonished by Yeshua's understanding, and that if he had lived longer, he might have recognized the Messiah. But even if he didn't, Hillel understood the same thing that God knew at Mount Sinai and that Yeshua knew when he was questioned by the lawyer, that people seeking God need to hear a message that they can understand. So imagine an elementary school music teacher who has to teach his students a new song. He walks into the class and he tells the student, okay, all right, we're going to learn a new song here. All right, repeat after me. 
The first note is a B flat, and you hold it for like half a measure, and then you go to a G for a quarter measure, and then you pause for four beats, and he just goes on like this for an hour, telling them what each note is until he's taught them hundreds of notes. And he's like, all right, guys, now sing the song for me. What do you think is going to happen? Nothing. Nothing's going to happen. The kids aren't going to have the slightest clue what to sing. Nothing the teacher said was wrong, but it's, it's too much information all at once. So the teacher tries a different method. He just sings the song for them. And now it's completely different. All, all those notes that were so hard are still there, but now instead of being hundreds of notes, it's one song. And the kids can get that. They can understand it. The teacher couldn't teach them hundreds of notes in one class, but he could teach them one song. Now, Hillel knows he can't teach the man 613 mitzvot, but he can teach him the song of Torah. And the Torah isn't diminished by this. Just like the song still contains all its notes, the song of Torah still contains all its mitzvot. Hillel even says it. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn. Now that you know the song, go and learn the notes. This is the same thing that God does at Mount Sinai. God wanted to, he could have delivered the entirety of Torah right then and there. You know, it would have taken a long time, but when God delivers a sermon, you don't leave to go to the bathroom. So, but he didn't do that. It would have been too much. Nobody would have been able to understand it. Instead, God sang them the song of Torah. The Ten Commandments are the distilled essence of God's will for us. Know that I am. Treat me with honor in everything that you do so that we can bless each other. Treat each other with honor. Don't do things to hurt each other. Treat yourself with respect because there's a little piece of me inside all of you. This is my song. Now Moses will teach you the notes. The Ten Commandments aren't the greatest mitzvot in Torah. They are Torah. The 613 mitzvot are instructions on how to obey the Ten Commandments. The commandments are the song and the mitzvot are the notes that teach you how to sing the song perfectly. It was the same for Yeshua. When he was asked what the greatest commandment was, he knew he was being lured into a trap. The lawyer wanted to try to force Yeshua to put the mitzvot into an order that could be disputed or maybe try to make the claim that by placing greater emphasis on one law, Yeshua was despising the rest. So Yeshua didn't even try to pick out a single mitzvot. He didn't try to put any commandments above the others. Instead, he sang the song of Torah and condensed the mitzvot down into their purest elements. You know, if the Ten Commandments are the distilled essence of Torah, then Yeshua's great commands are the distilled essence of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever wondered why when he asked what the greatest command was, Yeshua gave two answers? It's for the same reason that God wrote the Ten Words on two tablets instead of just putting them all on one. Because all of Torah is encapsulated in two great principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the Torah and prophets hang on these. Now that you know the song, go and learn the notes. Yeshua has given us an incredible gift. He took all of Torah, all of the law, and the prophets and the commandments, and he put them into a package that we can carry close to our hearts. But we have the responsibility to use that gift wisely. We have to open that box. We have to unpack it. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? How can I love the Lord with all my heart? 
only through the study of the word that we can truly understand what these commands mean. Yeshua has taught us the most wonderful song we'll ever hear. Now it's time for us to learn the notes. Shabbat shalom, everyone.